Now again, a very warm thank you for all who have taken time to be with us this evening. And as already indicated, we'll be reading in the little book of Habakkuk and ask you to turn to it in chapter number one. Maybe the first thing to clear out of the way is how do you pronounce this man's name? Is it Habakkuk? Is it Habakkuk? Or is it Habakkuk? Now the problem is in Hebrew there are no vowels, and so you're left with consonants, and that means your guess is as good as mine, as well as any Hebrew scholar. For the sake of our meetings, we're going to be calling him Habakkuk, and hopefully that will not offend anyone's sensitivities here. So Habakkuk in chapter number one, and verse number one. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause him to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. So that is the prophet's, if you want to call it complaint, or that is the prophet's prayer as he wrestles with this problem. And then God answers in verse number five, Behold ye among the heathen or the nations, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonish empire, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far, and they shall fly as the eagles that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, and they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this, his power, unto his God. That's the end of what God has to say. And now Habakkuk adds in verse number 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he, and makest men as the fishes of the sea, and creep in things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle, and catch them in their net, and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net, and burn incense unto their drag, unto their god, their idol, because by them their portion is fat, and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their nets and not spare continually to slay the nations? I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now we trust God will add his blessing to what is not a very commonly read portion of the word of God, but yet a very, very relevant and a very, very practical section of scripture. We know very little about this man Habakkuk. We know nothing about his lineage, his parents, his family, his background, his occupation. All we know, we are thrust into the chapter in verse number one and told that here's a man that had a, a tremendous burden. 
and a, and a tremendous concern relative to the nation. So we do have some insights into the time at which he prophesied. You'll remember that the last good king, the last good king in the nation of Judah was a man named Josiah. Foolishly, he went to battle against the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, and he was slain in battle. And Pharaoh took his son, Eliakim, and made him king. His reign lasted just three months. And then he took another son and made him king, and that man's name was Jehoiakim. And it's very likely that during that period of time is when Habakkuk presented his prophecy. There had been great reforms during the days of Josiah. Worship was restored, sacrifices were restored, feasts were kept, and the nation seemed to be returning to God in, its, in, a, in a revival under the, in the days of Josiah. But his reign and his life was very short. And of course, Jeremiah, his lamentation, is all about the death of, of Josiah. The great hope of Israel had been taken from the scene, and now what would follow would be four wicked kings who would hasten the judgment of God upon the nation. So that occurred somewhere in about the 7th century B.C. Jeremiah was still prophesying in, in the city of Jerusalem at the time, and likely Zephaniah and Nahum also were contemporaries, and God was speaking to the nation through this man, Habakkuk. So the time, we have a suggestion that it was during the reign of one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim. The theme of the short letter or short uh, book of course, is the perplexity that faced the prophet. Chapter 1 is his, his problem, if you will. The problem of a silent God and then a sovereign God. And we'll notice that especially tonight as we look at chapter number 1. Why was God silent amidst the evil that was occurring? And why did God in his sovereignty use a wicked nation like the Chaldeans, Babylon, to judge his own people? So in chapter 1, it's all about a problem that he's facing, the perplexity of God's ways. Chapter 2, God gives him principles, and God gives him a prospect to look to, and that will give him stability amidst his difficulty. Chapter 3, then, is all about prayer and praise. And we'll notice especially the final section of chapter 3, just so you know how we're going to be looking at things. There are three chapters, two nights, and obviously we can't look at each chapter in detail, but we'll look at chapter 1 tonight and chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3 on the succeeding night that we are together and look at the things that are there. So chapter 1 is a man weeping. Chapter 2 is a man who is watching. I will set me upon my tower and watch. And chapter 3 is a man who is, is worshiping. So these chapters fit together so beautifully and so in such a lovely way. The theme then is... A man wrestling, literally, wrestling with big moral questions, ethics. Why does God act as he does? And the difficulty of reconciling what he knows of God with what's occurring in the land. And we'll notice that in more detail. But something else that is very, very significant. Think of the, of the tone of the book we have just read. We didn't read it entirely. We just read one chapter. It is a book that is a dialogue between God and a man. The closest thing we have to this is the book of Jonah, which again is somewhat of a dialogue between God and his prophet. But in Jonah, there's, there are events that occur. There's Jonah and his running from God, and there's the great fish, 
and there's the repentance of the city of Nineveh. But here in this little book that we've read, there's no action. There are no events that occur. There's nothing that advances in, in terms of events in this book. It's all a dialogue between a man and his God. Chapter 1, he's praying and God answers and he's questioning God again. Chapter 2, it's God revealing things to him. And chapter 3, it's his prayer and his praise. And it's back and forth between God and a man. And as I said, it, it is unique in that way. It is the only book in our Bible that is purely a conversation, a dialogue, a back and forth between God and man. Interesting that... Uh, while well, we look at Jonah and it has somewhat of a similar structure, the end of the book, of each of those books, gives a totally different response from, from the prophets involved. Jonah responds in one way, and Habakkuk responds with worship. And so we'll see how lovely the end of this book occurs as we come to it. The lessons of this book, the teaching from this book, many, many different things we can learn from it. Certainly, we've mentioned already the, the idea of the sovereignty of God. And with that, there is this great thought that he is still the God of the nations. Now, we think of God as interested in the church. God is interested in assemblies. God is interested in the lives of believers. But God is still the God of the nations. He has not abdicated his role, has not abdicated his rule over the nations. And while things may seem to occur in haphazard ways, and while we see nations rising up and, and falling Behind all of that, there is the sovereign hand of God. As we'll notice as we come to this particular book, God is speaking here about a nation called Babylon. It had not yet ascended to the zenith of its power. It was beginning to assert itself in the Middle East. But Assyria was still the, uh, the dominant power. And this nation, Babylon, was going to defeat it in just a few years and become the dominant power and invade the land. God was moving nations like a man on like a chessboard, to, to position everyone, to bring everything to pass according as he wished to do. Just a, just a small aside, for example, to show you how carefully and how wisely God works. He brought the Babylonians in to, de to destroy the nation and carry away the children of Israel captive. Babylon's policy, when it conquered a nation, was to take the people away into captivity. God said 70 years are going to occur, and then they're coming back. And so what he did is he raises up Cyrus, king of Persia, and the Persians' policy in conquest was to leave people in their land. So when the Persians came to power and defeated Babylon, they took all, they allowed all of the Israelites, the, those from Judah, to return to their land. And of course, that's under what we have in Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then Nehemiah, so that God took one nation and brought it to prominence to take his people into captivity. And 70 years later, he takes another nation and brings them into prominence to allow his people to come back to their land as he had promised. So God is the God of the nations. Even today, we, we see problems in nations and rightly we pray about the distress of nations. We pray about the corruption, the injustice, the hardship. But behind all that, there is a, a sovereign hand that is working to bring about everything according to his own purposes and his will. There are people today who are hearing the gospel who could have never heard it had problems not occurred in their lands to cause them to flee, to find refuge somewhere else. We may say that's a, 
That's a big price to pay for people to be saved. Well, if that's the ultimate value of life, it's not a big price to pay. And so we see God as the God of the, of the nations. We see that as we're told here, God is holy. And Habakkuk will, will come to that time and again. How can God who is holy look on sin? How can God who is holy use a, an unholy nation as his instrument to bring judgment upon his people? And he pleads the, the holiness of God. He will see that God is faithful. And he will, he will depend upon that in his prayer and in his praise. That, that God is a God who is faithful and will keep his word and will keep his covenant with his people. And he reminds us of that. There is a verse we will come to tomorrow night in chapter, next week in chapter number two. To me, it is a, it's one of those key verses. God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He is going to show us that God in himself, that God is the ultimate answer to everything. Now, I know we have, and I don't want to take this away from anyone here, if you are Looking forward to this, and this is a great consolation to you. I, I know that people often say, well, when, when we get to heaven, we will have all the answers to life's problems. And why this, and why that, and why the Lord allowed this, why the Lord permitted that. I think one look at Christ will answer everything. That may seem very simple, but I think everything will be answered. We'll need nothing more than just an awareness of his greatness, of his majesty, of his love, of his mercy, of his compassion. That'll answer all our questions. And we're going to find out that's what answers the question here for this man, Habakkuk. When he reaches that point, he just rests in all that God is in himself. So the time, the theme, the tone, the teaching, just a, a word or two then about the actual prophecy itself. Just to give you a, an overview as we try to cover it in the time we have. Chapter 1 is all about the perplexity of unanswered and of answered prayer. Perplexity caused by unanswered prayer and then by answered prayer. He, he's, he's perplexed with both as we come to in this chapter. So the first four verses will tell us Israel's sin and God's silence. Israel's sin and God's silence. God doesn't answer. Verses 5 to 11 will tell us about Israel's sentence and God's sovereignty. And then at the end of the chapter, as we come to it, as time allows, we'll notice something about the prophet's struggle and God's sanctity. So just those three sections to look at in the brief time we have and consider it. We're reminded then in the first section about the, the prophet's identity. Who is he? He's Habakkuk. And as I said, we, we know nothing other than that. And we do know that his name can be translated either embracing or wrestling. And I think if, uh, if we translate his name as wrestling, we, we see here's a man who is wrestling throughout this, throughout this letter or this, this book. He is wrestling with uh, the great problem of human evil and its prosperity and its seeming injustice and oppression. And he's wrestling with it. Why? So we see something about the prophet's identity, a man who is wrestling. Something of the impact of his message on him. We read there those words, the, the burden, which Habakkuk, the burden. That just tells us something about the tremendous weight he felt. Here was, here was something that was pressing on this man every single day. Here was something that was like a heavy weight on his, on his heart. 
as he looked around and, and saw what was occurring in the land, it was like a tremendous weight. I have to be honest with you. I sometimes feel like all I do is say my prayers. You know what I mean? There's really very, very little burden. Assemblies are facing tremendous problems. Unsaved come and go from our meetings and there seems little power. A world around us is descending into a moral abyss. And we pray and we say our words and we express our thoughts, but how much of a burden is it? Here was something that weighed heavily upon the heart and conscience of this man. As he saw what was happening in the nation, as he saw the, the decline, he had lived probably through the glory days of Josiah's reforms, had seen how wonderful it was to see the temple opened, to see people flocking to worship, to see the sacrifices going up, to hear the singers singing and having God be praised. He had lived through all of that, and now he is watching as everything is just going the exact opposite way. And this man was faced with a tremendous burden. And we see then the intervention he sought. He cried to God to intervene. He, there was the problem, first of all, of injustice unjudged. Why doesn't God judge sin? Now, of course, Habakkuk is not the last person by any means to, to question that. In fact, if you do any speaking to people, if you have any any. Uh, Conversation with people about spiritual things, that is one of the first things that will be flung in your face. The so-called dilemma that God, if God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, why doesn't he intervene in our world? Why doesn't he stop the murders? Why doesn't he stop the genocide? Why doesn't he stop the cruelty? If he is all-powerful, he must not be all-loving, because if he were all-loving, he would intervene. And if he's all-loving, he must not be all-powerful, because then he can't and the argument seems to be so, so foolproof in the, th in the thinking of men who are against God. And the question is, why doesn't God intervene? Of course, if you ask people where they want God to intervene, it's not when they cheat on their income tax. It's only when someone's killing somebody else. And it's not when they are... Uh, maybe skimming a little money off the top rather, rather than paying uh, what they should to the state for their state. It, 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 it's other people's sins. It's other people's evil. It, it's the, what they call the big things they want God to intervene in rather than just their petty sins as they think of them. But here's a man, and he is genuinely wrestling with injustice, and why doesn't God intervene? But not just the injustice, but the, the prosperity of the wicked. He speaks here in these verses about spoiling and violence and the, uh, the wicked compassing about the righteous. And he sees not just that injustice is all around him, but the people per perpetrating it seem to be the ones prospering. They seem to be living lives of ease and nothing. It's the problem that Asaph had, wasn't it, in Psalm number 73, when he saw the prosperity of the, of the wicked. And he wondered why God wasn't doing something and why this was going. And here is Habakkuk. And it is the very, very same issue. The prosperity of those who are evil. And again, that didn't end in Habakkuk's day. If you are in business for yourself, or you're involved in the running of a business, you know well that all of your competitors, if they're not believers, 
they are adept at just how to manage things to avoid paying taxes and avoid certain things and they prosper. You may struggle. In other areas of business, they, the prosperity of the wicked. And here we have prosperity that is seemingly unchecked and unjudged by God. But then linked with it all is the problem of unanswered prayer. Verse 2, O Lord, how long? Verse 3, why are you showing me these things? Why are you making me, why are you burdening me with this if you're not doing anything about it? Why put this tremendous burden on my soul if, if, if you're going to be silent and, and not act and not do something? So here's a man in his face, not only with the awareness of all around him that seems so out of character for God to, to live with, but God isn't even answering his prayer and God has burdened him with this. And why doesn't God answer? We had similar expressions, didn't we, much, much earlier in the Word of God. There's a man named Gideon. He's threshing wheat by the winepress. And you recall the angel of the Lord is there, and the angel of the Lord says to him, uh, Go in this, thou art a mighty man of valor, and uh, go in this thy might, the Lord shall be with thee. And Gideon says, If the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? I mean, it doesn't fit, does it? If God is with us, why are we impoverished? And why are the... Uh, Midianites coming up and taking everything from us, and we're in famine conditions. If God is with us, then why are things as they are? Now, God can allow famine. I know the subject is not the subject of famine, but God can allow famine for different reasons. He can allow famine to touch our consciences, to make us realize we've gone astray somewhere. We need to get back. That's what he did, didn't he, with, uh, with David. Three years, year after year, famine, and finally inquired, and it was because of what Saul had done. Consciences were touched, and things had to be made right. But he can, he can bring famine not only to touch our consciences, but to test our commitment. He did that with Boaz. And Boaz, Boaz passed the test. He comes through the famine, and he's a mighty man of wealth as a result. And he's able to be a blessing to others. But here's a man, and he's wondering why. You check it yourself with your concordance. Ten times at least in the Psalms. You know what the psalmist cries? Oh Lord, how long? Oh Lord, how long? Whether it's the prosperity of the wicked, the oppression of the righteous, what, he's crying to God ten different times in the Psalms. Oh Lord, how long? How, how long will I be made to see? And, and it, it, it's wrenched from him as though it's his greatest burden. How long is this going to be before you intervene? You remember also a woman named Hannah. Hannah had a similar experience, crying to God year after year, and yet barren. Now, during that period of time, maybe this is one reason at times that God does not answer prayer immediately. During that period of time, Hannah had a rival. A rival for the affection of her husband. A rival for prominence in the, in the family. And as well, during that period of time, God had a rival. There were idols that were vying for affection from the hearts of his people. During that time, Hannah was barren. During that time, the nation of Israel was barren. 
And Hannah was being made to feel exactly how God felt. To experience what God was experiencing. The barrenness of the nation. The barrenness of her womb. The rival affections. the rival, And she was entering into something of what God himself felt. And all of that period of time that she was waiting for God to answer, she was learning something of the heart of God. And so at times when we are waiting and we cry out our how longs, it's to enable us to understand something of God's heart and how he feels and what he is experiencing. So in these first four verses then, the great dilemma he has is the silence of God. I think it was um, Sir Robert Anderson in one of his books. He said, the greatest trial likely for believers is the silence of heaven. That's something to think about. He was not a, a man given to superficial statements. That perhaps the greatest trial believers have is the silence of heaven. And that's exactly where we are in this book. But then something about Israel's sentence and God's sovereignty. He got an unexpected answer. God tells him in verse number 5, now, the, I know it's lovely to think that in the New Testament, this verse is used in a positive way. Here it's used in a negative way. Behold ye, he says in verse number five, among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously, I'm working a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. You won't believe it, but I'm, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. Assyria's day is going to end. Egypt's day is going to end. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, that hasty nation, and they're going to come through the land and destroy it. In a, I am going to judge evil. I will answer. I will answer your prayer. But of course, to Habakkuk, that was not the answer he wanted. He had his own mind made up as to how God was going to work, how God was going to do things, and he was perplexed at the answer that, that God gave him. That God was going to use a wicked nation, a nation more wicked than Judah, to punish Judah, seemed so out of character. And he is faced with this tremendous dilemma that things were getting worse rather than better. Did you ever pray about something and things got worse? Things actually got worse as you prayed about them? Instead of, instead of God intervening and getting better? It's kind of like what, what happened to Moses. When Moses comes back to the land of Egypt and goes into Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And you all know the story. Pharaoh says the people are lazy, cause them to make bricks, but don't give them the straw. They've got to gather it themselves. And Moses and Aaron come out from the presence of God and they meet the the Jewish foreman, and they say, you know, ever since you came, things have gotten worse. Why did you bother? Ever since you came, things have just gotten worse for us. Why did you come? Sometimes when you're praying about something, something gets worse. And it seems like it gets darker and darker and darker. And that's where he was at this point in his time. He did not want the answer to prayer that God gave him. We have God all figured out as to how he works, what he should do, and how he should ha handle this, how he should handle that. In our home Bible reading, we just, uh, just began in the book of Acts and just into Acts chapter 4. And it's the, uh, it's the first imprisonment of the apostles in the book of the Acts. I think there are at least six times, including Paul's two at the end, at least six times that believers, mainly the apostles, are imprisoned in the book of Acts. And what is remarkable is this. 
that God never deals with their imprisonment in exactly the same way. On one occasion, the Lord stood by Paul, but that was it. No escape. There's the earthquake in chapter 16 we all know about. There's the uh, centurion and the 200 soldiers that whisked Paul away on other occasions to, to Caesarea. And then uh, there's the angel coming and opening the door. God always deals differently. We try to make God work according to what, the way we think he ought to work. And he doesn't answer prayer according to our formulas. He works in unique ways. To quote Cowper's hymn, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He does things that seem so incongruous to us, but yet he's working out his purposes in very, very unique and significant ways. The unexpected answer, the unseen activity, God was working to bring the Chaldeans to prominence. You don't see it. You won't believe it. If a man told you that I'm going to be working this, I'm going to be doing this, you can check the dates as to when uh, the Chaldeans defeated the Assyrians at in around 605, and then Egypt, and so on, and uh, they come into prominence. Of course, 587, eventually they'll carry away the children of Israel. But here, there's the unseen activity of God, and there's the unstoppable force that he is going to pinpoint in their activity. Now, that's all the way down to verse number 11. We don't need to go into all the details of their, their activity. But just come to verse 12 to 17, which is where we want to come to especially. I want you to think of his confession. Notice what he says. Number one, thou art from everlasting. O Lord my God, the Holy One. Then in verse, the end of that verse, O mighty God. Now, if you have a good margin, I shouldn't say if you have a good margin. If you have a margin that gives it, you'll notice that that expression, O mighty one, O mighty God, is actually the word translated back in Deuteronomy 32 as rock. Rock. So there are at least four things he says about God here that he's going to take refuge in and also use as a, a fulcrum for his prayer. First of all, he's the Lord. Now, that means more than just his greatness and sovereignty. Whenever you have the word Lord, Jehovah, it is emphasizing the faithful, covenant-keeping God. He is telling, basically saying to God, you are a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He's reminding God of all of his promises, his promise to Abraham, his promise to David, his promises that he was going to bring in ultimate glory for the nation. And so he's reminding God of his covenant-keeping faithfulness. So the first thing is the faithfulness of God. But then he says as well that you're from everlasting. Could I just say that is a, a God who is forever? God who is outside of time. We dwell in time. We move, move through events in life. We encounter things that we don't expect to encounter, but everything is known to God. He is the God who is forever, the eternal God, who is over all, outside of time, not, not affected by the events of life, in control of all. A God who is forever, a God who is faithful, a God who is free from sin. You cannot sin. You are the Holy One. Whatever you do has to be absolutely consistent with your character. And then he says, you are a firm foundation. You are a rock. And here is where I am going to plant my feet. And here is where we as believers can always plant our feet. When faced with perplexities, when faced with the many whys of, of life, why did God allow this? Why did God bring this into my life? 
Why did God sever this tie? Why did God... And you can fill in the blank in your life. And if you haven't had any whys in your life, I'm sure there's others here who can give you a few to share, and you can enjoy them and live with them. We all have whys. Nothing wrong with asking God why. But in the end, what he comes to is the very character of God himself. A God who is forever, a God who is faithful, a God who is free from sin, a God who is a firm foundation to rest upon. And he will rest there in the divine, in the divine nature, in the very character of God. Back in Isaiah 26, in one of those lovely songs of, of Isaiah where he is looking forward to future glory, he says there, that will keep him, now I'll give you the marginal reading, that will keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is stayed on God. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind just, just stops with God. That's the answer. He is faithful. He is forever. He, he's, he's over everything. He's outside. He is so great, so infinite, so majestic in his person. He's over everything, and everything's under his control. No, no emergencies before the throne of heaven. No 911 calls. He's in absolute control of all. And while he cannot understand the circumstances, the difficulty, the problems, what he knows of God, he is able to just rest in. Someone that says, when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. And that's where this Habakkuk comes to in, in this section. You can always trust the heart of God, even when we cannot see his hand at work. J.G. Patton was a, a missionary from the land of Scotland who went from Scotland to the New Hebrides in, back in the 1800s, 1857 is when he left Scotland, got there, believe it or not, almost a year later, 1958, they didn't have jumbo jets, uh, went by ship, I think it was a canoe, took him a year, but anyway, he got there and uh, went there to preach the gospel to the natives. He was there for a year. His wife had a child, their first child. First the baby died. And then almost immediately, his wife died. And a lonely, isolated man stood by two freshly dug graves with lots of wise and just said, if it had not been for the fellowship of Jesus, I would have gone mad and died by their graves. Lots of, lots of whys in the world. Lots of whys in the lives of, of believers. And not a lot of answers that are forthcoming, but a God who is sovereign, a God who is absolutely dependable. So we see his confession. Of course, it is also linked with his, his confusion. How could a God who is holy allow wicked men to devour those who are, are righteous? His confusion. Isaiah chapter 40. We love that chapter, you know, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint, and we all take great comfort, great encouragement from it, but just a few verses earlier, as you get down that chapter, it says, why hast thou said, O Jacob, my way is hid from the Lord? Hast thou not known? And were, Jacob was saying, it's speaking about those in captivity, Say, God has forgotten us, it, God, God doesn't know we're here. 
God is just allowing the, the wicked to triumph over us and we are we're absolutely forgotten of God. And God has to say there through his prophet Isaiah, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, never weary, no searching of his knowledge. He calls the star, he calls all the stars and he knows their names. Do you think he forgets uh, his people who are in captivity? This God and all his greatness? Habakkuk is wrestling with trying to reconcile the circumstances of life with the character of God. We frequently wrestle with that as well. Why God takes away valuable men in their prime. There were several great men. I, I, all of their names are eluding me right now, but men at the age of 29. Anybody here 29 years of age? How would you like this to be the, the end of your life for God? Jim Elliott, 29 years of age. Robert Murray McShane, 29 years of age. Men who are great in their own, but lives so limited, lives so brief. We would say, why? God had his reasons. Trying to reconcile God's character with the circumstances of life. That's where he goes. His confession. His confusion. But then we see that he faces a crisis. Is God going to allow the advance of the Chaldeans to go unchecked? I mean, is this just going to keep going on and, and God isn't going to intervene? Is God going to allow that wicked nation to swallow up his people? And finally, is God going to allow injustice by that nation to continue, even though he judges his own nation? He's faced with this tremendous crisis in his, in his own thinking. As believers, we are faced with many, many difficult questions, individually in our lives, in our families, in our assemblies. And I don't know if you feel it, but in, in the nation around us and with the way our nation is going, and you, you, what is God going to do? I don't like to end a meeting on a very negative note, but our nation is where Sodom and Gomorrah was when God had to judge it. That's where we are today. Not to throw statistics, but more people today who should marry are choosing not to marry. What that means is more people are living together than getting married. And people who should not get married are clamoring for the right to marry. And so we have this reversal, a society that is totally out of kilter and obliterating every, every vestige of divine order that God had put into society. And we see that going on all around us and... We cry, how long? There either has to come judgment or a reviving, a movement of God in our nation. But more apropos is our own personal struggles with the whys of our life. Why things happen. Why God allows things to occur. The pink, the pink slip at work. The, the diagnosis from the doctor you never expected. The rebellion of a child in the family. The, 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 all of those difficulties that can occur. And we're faced with the, the unanswerable whys. Why has God allowed all of this in, into our lives? The, the crisis. But I need to point out the choice that he made. Now, when we are faced with problems, when we are faced with things we cannot explain, we have a choice. We can become bitter. 
We can become resentful. We can become like Jonah, petulant and petty and peeved and just end up sitting under our little tree and feeling lots of self-pity. That's what Jonah did. He couldn't understand how a holy God could pardon a wicked nation like Nineveh. I mean, he wanted them exterminated. And yet God pardoned them when they repented. And God did not judge them. And he, he, again, he couldn't understand God's character and, uh, and God's conduct. We face lots of those things. And we have a choice. The choice is we can become angry, frustrated, annoyed, even doubting, even falling into unbelief. All of those things are possible. But I want you to notice the choice that this man made. He says, I will go and stand upon my tower, and I will watch and see what he will answer me. What he chose to do was to go to God in prayer and wait in the presence of God for God to reveal his purposes. He chose wisely rather than bitterness. He chose to bend his knee in the presence of God. Rather than self-pity, he chose supplication before the throne of God. And so the chapter ends with him saying, in, at the end of the chapter, rather in chapter 2 and verse number 1, I will stand upon my watch, set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So we're reminded here of his watch, of his waiting, and his willingness to learn from God even in this very, very dark day. Here's a man who is taking the high road. We have the character of God to rest upon. We have the throne of God that we can avail ourselves of. And we can rest in all that God is and seek with his grace and his help to be what we ought to be. The name of Jonathan Edwards is probably well known to most here. Jonathan Edwards was one of the... In the, in the minds of many, one of the greatest theologians that America ever produced. He lived during the 1700s, during the period of our Civil War, I'm sorry, our Revolutionary War, and uh, his life again was relatively brief. In um, 1758, he was elected, now don't, uh, this will surprise you perhaps, he was elected to be president of Princeton University. So a theologian, evangelical, was elected to be president of Princeton University. He left Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and traveled to Princeton. He was inoculated. It was still experimental. You've got to remember the time. Still he was inoculated for smallpox as an experiment. And in March of 1758, he died while his wife, Sarah, was still back home in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, packing things. She didn't get the letter for about a week and a half. And when she did, she sat down and wrote her, her daughter a letter. 
She said, my, I'll have to read it. It's too, too long for me to memorize. She said, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Now listen to what she says. Oh, that we might kiss the rod, lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness, we have had, that we have had your father so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. What a legacy your, my husband and your father has left us. We're all given to God, and there I am, and loved your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. To add to that, she wrote that letter to her daughter, Esther. Her daughter, Esther, never read the letter because Esther died within two weeks. Tragedy upon tragedy. But that expression struck me. Let us kiss the rod. Let us kiss the rod that smites. Tremendous to think of some believers who can just rest in all that God is amidst the uncertainties, the perplexities, the unanswered questions of life, leaving everything with him and bowing in a worshiping spirit before God. The ultimate, of course, of all of that, the quintessential example. We read that when they had sung a hymn, when they sang a psalm, they went out on that night from the upper room. The psalm they sang, historians tell us, they would have sang the great Hallel, ending in Psalm 118. So the Lord Jesus Christ went out to Gethsemane and to Golgotha, singing these words, Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will worship thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. He went to Calvary worshiping the hand that would soon crush him on the cross. However great any saint is, it's all eclipsed by the Lord Jesus Christ and his greatness. But from Habakkuk, may we learn the lesson then. Perplexity, prayers that were unanswered, but then prayers that are answered. God in his own time, in his own way. You've probably heard the story. I'll just close with this. William Grimshaw, he was one of those circuit-riding preachers that lived about the same time as Jonathan Edwards, but he was living in England, lived the same contemporary of Wesley, a contemporary of George Whitfield, and he preached the gospel, and he had very, very little in the way of earthly goods. When he died, all he had left was a horse, and he willed his horse to his son John. And one day, John Grimshaw is out riding along the countryside. He was a very, very profligate young man. And as he's riding along, he says to himself, here's a, here's a horse that once carried a man preaching the gospel, telling people to flee from hell. Now it's carrying a man on his way to hell. His own words convicted him. And John Grimshaw got saved. And John Grimshaw said, I wonder what my father will think when he sees me in heaven. Lots of prayers that will not necessarily get their answers this side of heaven for us. But God is a God who is faithful. He is a God who is forever. He is a God who has a firm foundation. We can rest upon him and wait patiently 